Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Before we get started, a little uh, special announcement for you. We started a 10% Happier newsletter. The the word newsletter doesn't sound particularly exciting, but let me just say this in, in its defense. I have found personally that uh, a great way to stay engaged in meditation and mental upkeep generally is to read about it because it's really easy um, if you're trying to meditate with any regularity for it to feel kind of stupid just to sit there watching your breath coming in and going out. And you can you can lose touch with the intellectual infrastructure of the thing. So reading great articles can really help. So we started this newsletter. You can sign up for it at 10percenthappiercom slash newsletter, and you'll get all the, we, we're sort of collecting all the uh, latest and greatest writing about meditation and putting it in one place for you. Uh, so there you go. Uh, also, we'll have links in there to free guided meditations if you want to do it on uh, the 10% Happier app. Anyway, this week, a really cool guy, uh, Lodro Rinsler. Um, he is a meditation teacher based out of New York City, doing tons of interesting things. One of the things he's doing is he started a chain of drop-in meditation studios that are that are secular and really lovely uh, in, in their decor. They're called Mindful, M-N-D-F-L, they're spelled, so they've taken all the vowels out, Mindful. And he's got one in uh, lower Manhattan, one on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, and another in Brooklyn. This is a really interesting trend of uh, meditation studios. They're opening up all over the country. I think that's actually a really positive trend. And Lodro has also written a bunch of books, including The Buddha Walked Into a Bar, which is a funny uh, book uh, designed to make Buddhism relevant to young people. And his most recent book is called Love Hurts, Buddhist Advice for the Heartbroken. Uh, which is a really interesting book and actually the focus of much of this interview. And so here he is, Lodro Rinsler. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Well, thanks for doing this. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And it's great to see you. It really yeah, is. Yeah. It's always great to see you. So uh, how, did you, how did you get into this whole meditation racket? You were born into it, weren't you? I was. Yeah, it was just always around. So my parents started practicing meditation in the Buddhist tradition when they were in their 20s. And then by the time I came around, it was just sort of like in the household. They came across me when I was six years old, and I was um, just sort of sitting there. And they're like, should we disturb him? Is he doing something? And they asked me later. And, I mean, this gets to, you know, all the beautiful things that you talk about in 10% Happier, about the sort of the simplicity, like the dumbfounding simplicity of, of meditation practice that they said to their six-year-old son, you know, what were you doing in that? And I said, I just sat upright and I started paying attention to my breathing. And they said, that's it? And I said, that's it. And they go, sounds like he was meditating. Yeah. <laughs> wow. What, what came over you to do that? Had you just heard no them talk clue. about it a lot? Yeah, it was, again, I think it was environmental. You know, I get a lot of questions from people who are interested in meditation. They've got young kids. How do I get them into it? And I think it's just we show up for people and they start to pick up on certain cues, definitely with kids. We all know this for kids. So for me, it was just around to the point that I thought, oh, this is something that is not only like acceptable to do, it's encouraged. So you were six years old and you started meditating. Yeah, and I started doing like longer retreats when I was a teenager, did this whole stint in temporary ordination, became a monk when I was 17, uh, lasted all the summer before I went back, and at the age of 18, like went to the polar opposite extreme, went to college and did keg stance. Yeah, yeah. nice, <laughs> nice. Uh, I kept practicing. I have a two-year-old. Do you have any advice about how to get that little m- m- mongrel to meditate? 
I mean, I think there's something about young kids that they they really are quite present already. Yo, like, he's they, definitely present, but he's present, present as he's ripping the face off of a cat or I mean, or shoving a cupcake in my face. Applied mindfulness practice, yeah. yeah the the cupcake sadhana, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you know for people who have young kids, it's really just uh, showing up and being willing. I think to talk about it. So I think a lot of parents who do meditation and have young children, it's almost like a shyness of like wanting to keep it separate and not letting the kids in on what it, but if it's sort of like a generally accepted thing in the household the kids start to pick up on it and they want to do it too so I, you saw your parents do it because I don't I do it with my kid it. in the room because it's impossible to do it because he's going to scream in my face or pull my hair or whatever well that's the thing so I have a meditation student named Nicole Nicole lives outside of Minneapolis she's got two young kids she wakes up to meditate before anyone in the house gets up and the kids somehow like have the spider sense that they hear her meditating they get her meditating. like just have this like sense yeah. of like oh yeah. mom's up she's meditating yeah run into the room tackle onto her and like fight over who gets to sit on which knee and she still gets 10 minutes of meditation in a day so oh, i honestly think good. if she can do it anyone can do yeah, it. yeah absolutely yeah. absolutely no and it's not that i don't get meditation time i do it's just that i do it you, when he's you have in kid what, meditation time yeah well no i do my meditation in whatever room he's not having a tantrum <laughs> Right. Not so in other words he's not really exposed to it. Hopefully he's exposed to me being a better parent because I do it. Yeah, I mean that's part of it, right? Again, it's just sort of in the environment as opposed to you having to come up with the 10-step plan for why your kids going to end up rotating right. down the road. So anyway, we're, we we I've made us digress. Okay. Uh, you were talking about you here. Um um, although I reserve the right to ask to always you, talk it, about your kids, or just talk about me <laughs> at length, or to ask you advice on anything that happens to be bothering me. Happy to. Um, but on you, so you, you're what your parents were Buddhists, like of what flavor? So I was born and raised in the Shambhala Buddhist tradition, which is uh, so it comes from Tibetan Buddhism. Yeah, and um, it has a special emphasis on really being in society, though. Really very much like, okay, we meditation, we do meditation practice and we practice for our everyday life. So there's a heavy emphasis on how do we show up for other human beings. And I think that was that sort of like community service oriented aspect, that sort of view of we do this so that we can be helpful to the world was always sort of like imprinted in my brain growing up. So, you know, right alongside of meditation, I also became more involved in activism in skillful and also totally not skillful ways and found my own way around that. And, um, Continued on to the point that, like, I ended up going full-blown into a career. After I graduated from college, I served as the executive director of the Boston Shambhala Center. Oh, wow. So I did that and then served as their head of development for Shambhala internationally for a number of years before writing my books, just starting to teach more and more. So I've been teaching meditation for about 15 years to all different types of people, but it's been really beautiful to continue to sort of reflect back and say, well, you know, what a treat that I was actually raised with this view that we could do meditation practice and that this is just a normal thing that we do. Where were, where were you raised and did your, the other kids in your life think it was normal that you were meditating? I was raised in this um, very bizarre foreign land called um, Manhattan. Oh, you were yeah. right, right here. <laughs> right here. And did so the other and kids- And it was though. It was Damn. cool for you to do it? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I don't, I think it was weird. Oh, it was weird. And yeah, I, yeah. honestly, like at this point, I grew up meditating. I also grew up reading comic books. No yeah. one has ever asked me to come to their company and talk about the X-Men, no. you know, for whatever reason. But now, all of a sudden, with all the science that's come out around meditation, it's this super amazing mainstream thing that everyone wants to talk about. So how did you deal with it when other, your friends were like, wow, this is weird. Why are you, why are you meditating? I don't think I dealt with it well. <laughs> when you, you know? punch them in the face. <laughs> right. So I think, <laughs> like, honestly, Shambhala training level one, like the very intro weekend, 
I think it used to be called something like the art of the warrior. Mm-hmm. And my parents were like, let's give you the art of the warrior. And it was just sitting there. And I thought that I was going to get like tools for how to deal with bullies. And I did not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> warrior, of course, in that tradition being like one who is brave. And by bravery, you mean like one who looks at their own aggression. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea of a warrior being someone that's willing to look at their own neurosis and their shtick and get past it. Um, which I, I think wasn't the best bully preventative, and so I ended up getting pushed into a lot of lockers. Yeah, so did I, and I wasn't even meditating. Mostly just because I said the wrong thing to large people frequently. Yeah. I still do that, but... Uh, and no one's pushed you into a locker in this month. No, no. Um, anyway, I digressing again. Uh, so you really kind of burst onto the scene with this book, The Buddha Walks Into a Bar, which I have to admit, I'm really embarrassed to admit, I've known you for a while and hadn't read but just actually downloaded and been listening to um, in, in the gym. It, it's really good. It, what you're trying to – actually, I think our goals are really consonant. I was writing 10% Happier because I wanted to make meditation accessible to skeptics, and you are writing uh, – you wrote The Buddha Walks Into a Bar and then a bunch of uh, sequels uh, really as a way to, to make Buddhism accessible to 20-somethings. So – that's a statement. Uh, can you just amplify that and 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 and, and t- describe a little bit how you went about this? Yeah. Well, so, and, well, me, sorry. For, why did you think that was important, and, and then how did you go about? Sure. It? So, okay. I mean, a lot of people have, at this point have probably heard of Pema Chodron. She's a very well-known Buddhist teacher and author, and one of her in the Shambhala in the Shambhala tradition yeah. in particular. Yeah. And uh, although honestly, I really do think that she's like Oprah mainstream at this point. Yeah. Um. I picked up her book when I was in my mid-20s. I was going through a breakup. Which one? She's When Things Fall Apart. Okay. Yeah. And I believe that's the chapter. Her first chapter is about how she comes home and she realizes that her marriage has fallen apart and she's getting a divorce. And, and she heartbreak. picks up a rock to throw at her husband or something like something that. Like yeah. That. Yeah. I interviewed her. She's cool. Yeah. Right? Um, so I immediately connected to that and I was like, oh, but I don't know. I know that heartbreak, but I don't know getting a divorce because I'm in my mid-20s and I, I was not married. And um, I thought, who's writing about that like first big heartbreak? Or instead of like the midlife crisis, who's writing about the quarter life crisis where you're figuring out what you want to do for work? And I just looked and looked and looked and I couldn't find anything, any like Buddhist teachers talking about it. So I said, I know very little. I still know very little. But at least I can open up a conversation around it. So I think all of the books are conversational. Here's my understanding of the Buddhist philosophy, um, the teachings that were presented. Here's how I've put them into use in my life and then it's really opened up so many dialogues around okay what does it mean if we are going to go out with friends and have a couple drinks could we actually bring some of the meditation practice off the cushion and show up and actually deeply listen to our friends can you i mean can you go get hammered mindfully i wouldn't say hammered (laughs) but i think you know there's different aspects like when we go out on a friday night are we it's actually pausing and saying, what's my intention here? Am I looking to get drunk and forget about my week? Am I looking to just connect with a friend? And knowing that actually starts to guide our behavior to the point that we could approach it with a little bit more intentionality. Could we actually mindfully sip our one glass of whiskey or whatever it might be and enjoy the company that we actually set out to enjoy as opposed to looking around the room seeing if there's anyone hot that we want to hook up with? Well, like what's wrong actually, with that? Well, if that's your intention then that's different, right? So it's literally saying how much can we actually bring a sense of intentionality? Um, One could even say applied mindfulness, like consciously trying to show up for certain things, whether it's a conversation or a food or drink or whatever it might be, um, to the point that we actually end up with the fruition where we feel uplifted as opposed to completely hungover and and spaced out. So looking at all of those aspects, both in going out with friends, but work life, romantic life, you name it. 
And so then you wrote The Buddha Walks Into an Office, Into the Office, which was about applying this stuff at the office. Yeah, leadership principles in terms of how to show up and be more compassionate at work. Was that the end of The Buddha Walks Into a, or, or was there one more? There was Walk Like a Buddha, which was like literally, I had this column for a number of years in the Huffington Post called What Would Sid Do?, which was horribly offensive to traditional Buddhists. What would Siddhartha, yeah, Gautama, Siddhartha the, Gautama, the historical. But yeah. I imagine, like, do you really think all his friends were like, Siddhartha, Gautama, Siddhartha? Yeah. I think yeah. they would call him Sid, you know? So, Or they called him the Buddha. Well, when he became well, the Buddha. But the, this is the, the whole point. One. Like, back before he was the Buddha, he was a human being that probably had, he made mistakes, you know? Like, he was, he was a fallible person. Um, so, so do we, how do we deal with any of like, if we're not enlightened, which I'm not, I suspect you may be, but we'll see. Mm. Um, trust me, <laughs> no, but you know, how do we actually start to apply these principles to the nitty gritty things in our life? So that column got, um, I kept going with it and it got made into a book, which was walk like a Buddha. So literally questions from. People that would read my columns and write in and say, I've got this weird scenario that no one's ever heard of that I've heard 10 times before, of course, so I'd answer it in the book. Um, so a lot of walking themes. A lot of walking and, themes. And then we did Sit Like a Buddha, though. That was simple. It was just how to meditate. Very small volume. <laughs> like, you know, as small as sit there and follow the breath. But, you know, how do you actually launch a meditation practice, which I'm sure you must... You must get this question all the time. Like, I tried it once, and it didn't work for me. Yes. So literally, yes. just a small volume. What do you like, say okay. to that? I say it's a little bit like going to the gym once and be like, oh, I didn't lose 10 pounds. Like, that's just not how it works. It's cumulative in nature. Um, so it's giving yourself a wide berth and sort of trusting that over time we'll start to see subtle effects, even if the subtle effect is like, oh, I didn't snap at my spouse as much as I used yeah, to. Yeah, but what do you say to people? Because this is what I really hear is that I sat and tried to do it, and I couldn't stop thinking. Yeah, well, that's part of it. So I always use the definition in the Tibetan tradition because I get I get geeky sometimes around this stuff. And the I, one I of the you Tibetan start words, geeky around this. I stuff. start geeky and then I relax. <laughs> um, the word gom g o m in Tibetan can be translated as meditation. Can also be translated as become familiar or uh -huh. familiarization. Yeah, yeah. So it's the idea that meditation is us becoming familiar with all of those thoughts, becoming familiar with the strong emotions that come up, and ultimately. I'm I'm of the school that actually the thing that no one talks about with meditation that we should be is that where we go with this is that we learn to accept ourselves as we are mm -hmm. as opposed to thinking we should be better. It's not a self-help thing, right? Like we're not trying to improve and level up and be something different. We're actually improving our understanding of who we already are. And it's, that's part of it. It's the thoughts. It's also referred to as, you know, gom, I guess is the Tibetan term for familiarization, but in in the in Pali, the ancient Indian language, vipassana, is just, you know, is insight, mm -hmm. seeing clearly, right? And that's not some lofty thing. It's just like actually seeing clearly what is happening in your mind and your body right now so that it doesn't yank you around. Not complicated. Not. Not easy to do. Yeah. I mean, our mutual friend, Sharon Salzberg, I love this because anytime she, she gets this question, she goes, simple, but not easy. Yeah. Right? And I think that's it. That's really, like, if there's... There, there should be a heading under any meditation book that, or a disclaimer that says, like, simple but not easy. So right. simple. So, so if somebody says to you, uh, as, as, as people say to me all the time, I sat, tried to meditate, I couldn't stop thinking, your answer is you don't have to stop thinking. None the least. Like, asking the mind to stop thinking is like asking the heart to stop beating because you don't like the sound of it. Right? Like, that's not practical. Um, the mind is always going to generate thoughts and concepts and emotions, and it's just us starting to look at them, befriend them to the point that we learn to become more okay with who we are. And then, and really, though, if your practice is, and I think this is the kind of practice you teach, to, to 
pay attention to your breath and then you're going to be invaded by all these thoughts or they're going to be or they're going to arise is don't get uptight about it notice that you're thinking maybe even make a mental note about the variety of thought anxious impatient rushing planning whatever and back to the breath and you may just have to do that a million times but it's so, it's so funny Everybody needs to hear this a million times in order to get comfortable with it. That's one hundred percent right. Yeah. I need to hear it a million times. Yeah, There's, it's like the I say this all the time that basic meditation instructions are like the opposite of the airline safety instructions because the diminishing returns on airline safety instructions are like you know very steep. Um, and there's ve- very little values. My apologies to everybody in the aviation community <laughs> of hearing these over and over and over again, right? Mm-hmm. Which is why they ha- have to sex them up now with all sorts of animations and all this stuff. But every time I hear the basic meditation uh, instructions of like, yeah, pay attention to your breath, and when you get lost, start over, it's totally cool. It's a hugely important and useful reminder. And just simple changes where it's supposed to someone saying, pay attention to your breath. You might say, feel your breath. Yes. Like, oh, yes, wait. Yes, you're right. right. It's not a exactly. mental exercise. It's not thinking about your breath. It's yeah. the raw data of the physical The visceral sensation. liveness of, oh, I'm yeah. breathing. Yeah. Okay. I can tune into this. Mm-hmm. How, so you, you did the Buddha walks into a bar. You did the Buddha walks into the office. You did walk like a Buddha, sit like a Buddha. Am I missing anything? How to love yourself and sometimes other people, which is obviously completely different. But it is this notion. We were just talking about sort of the befriending yourself as you are. Just learning to – meditation as a practice to actually learn to be kind to ourselves, to actually learn to love ourselves. The more – in the same way that if you met a new friend, you started spending time with them, you wouldn't immediately be like, hey, you do exactly what I want you to do, what I want. You just follow my lead and just the moment you stray from it, I'm going to be upset at you. We would actually be gently inquisitive with them. We would get to know them. We'd become familiar with them. Maybe months, years pass. We look over our shoulder like, oh, I love my friend. Same thing with our mind. So meditation as a practice to actually not only just become familiar with ourselves, but actually learn to love ourselves. And the more we actually have love for ourselves, the more love we have to offer to other people in our life. Not quite sure how that works, though, because I, I see how the – I definitely see how meditation makes you more familiar with your mind and makes you see what's happening more clearly so that, you know, it doesn't – you're not driven blindly by it. But I don't necessarily see how that makes me – like or love myself more. Here's the part that no one talks about with meditation because everyone's so focused on I'm just going to become more present, which is great. I mean, all the science around it is incredible. Most of the time, I don't know about you, most of the time for me, meditation is, oh, yeah, I just drifted off. I got to come on back. Yeah. But here's the thing that we don't talk about. Like what voice do we use when that happens? Often a very judgmental voice. A very judgmental voice. My friend actually has a term. I'm just wondering if I'm allowed to say it on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Okay. uh, It's inner bitch radio. Like this little channel in our head going like, oh, my God, you jerky. I can't believe everyone saw that. Mm -hmm, Like mm -hmm, just constantly mm -hmm. um, self-aggressive talk. So when we drift off, we might be like, oh, my God, you jerk. I can't believe that you keep doing this. Everyone else is sitting here completely peaceful except for you. And instead, could we actually transform ourselves to the point we say, oh, it's not a big deal. Everyone drifts off. It's okay. You know, just come on back. But that's taking it easier on yourself, which, frankly, after seven and a half years, I'm getting a tiny bit better at. But that's not necessarily loving yourself. I think that's offering yourself kindness. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I really do think it's actually being like, oh, I can, it's not, I don't have to think that there's some horrible, distant part of myself that I'm trying to get rid of in meditation. We think of meditation often as like this rigorously corrective process. Well, it's described often as purification. (laughs) Right. Which, I mean, you know, we're in literally how many decades has it been here in the States? Not that long. 
when you think about Buddhism, for example, going from India to Tibet, it took hundreds of years before they even figured out the right language around these things. And here we're like babies trying to figure out how to talk about this. So I, I, I don't know about anyone else, but my own experience is the more I actually treat myself with kindness when I drift off, come back, the more I actually feel like I'm accepting myself more as I am. And I think that is love. I think that's that's a big part of love, that we actually learn to be with things as they are as opposed to how we think they should be or how they used to be or any of it. So i just tell, talk a little bit about how it works for me. So when I, I notice that when I wake up from just – well, first of all, one of the things I think about is just the blatant hypocrisy because I'm out there telling people all the time, it's not a big deal if you wander. It, you should expect to wander a million times. Sure. Bake that into your baseline, blah, blah, blah. But then when I wander – of course, it's the self-laceration central. But what, So what I've noticed is that I really can't control what my initial reaction is going to be. All I can do is make a good, clean mental note that I'm judging myself, and that's when I can relax. But to expect to train myself to be sort of warm and loving in the face of incessant wandering seems to add another layer of pressure on top of things. So I, all I'm doing is just saying, okay, if I'm if I if I'm if I'm judging myself harshly when I when I get lost, just no, make a note of that and 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 then you're cool. Yeah, I mean, I think that's where we start. I honestly do. I think it's just starting in the same way that the first step on recovery for an alcoholic is admitting that you have a problem, mm -hmm. right? Like at first we're like, oh, I'm admitting that I'm extremely judgmental here. And that's a big part of how I've habituated my mind. Okay, I acknowledge that. I come back. But over time, we're like, oh, this is something that I'm doing a lot. And, you know, go back to um, this great book on meditation called 10% Happier. Um, at the end of <laughs> the your meditation yeah. retreat, <laughs> um, and you were you asked your question of Joseph Goldstein, not to give away the ending of it to uh, anyone. Go for it. But, you know, what was the advice that he gave? He said, after the 50th time that you're running in your mind to go catch your flight and you're going through security, you can just ask yourself, is this useful? Right. So same thing here. Like the 90 millionth time that we're beating ourselves up for wandering off in meditation, can we just stop for a second and be like, is this useful? Is this actually helping me? You know, I get, I can intellectually grasp firmly how the disutility of beating myself up in meditation. It's just that in the moment of waking up, there is a reflexive self-laceration. And that I feel like it adds a lot of pressure on me at least to expect that not to happen. To expect actually to be, to uh, to embrace the waking up with this loving uh, response toward myself, actually, that seems to be putting a lot of pressure on the practice. Where I just allow myself to have the moment of self laceration and then notice, oh yeah, I'm judging myself, and then get on with it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is a different way of doing it. I think just sort of allowing ourselves to be how we are, which is a big part. I mean, this is the new the book, the Love Hurts book that just came out. It's However many pages of me just being like, it's okay to feel exactly how you feel. Right. That's my point. Yeah. So you should – if but, when you wake up from, from distraction, you feel a little annoyed with yourself, it's too late. What are you going to do? Lacerate yourself for feeling annoyed? Well, that's, that's what I'm saying. We don't perpetuate it at that point. Yes, we sort of let yes. it go and we're like, okay, I notice that tendency I yes, have to beat yes, myself up. Yes, that's what I'm saying. But in that moment, we're like, all right, I give myself a break. Yes. And then we come back. And that I honestly think that's love, just giving ourselves a break, a sense of kindness when we notice that we're wandering off and starting to get annoyed. You can make an argument. I agree with everything you're saying, uh, as usual. Um, but you could make an argument, and I've heard it made, and I, th I find it attractive, that actually you could use the moment of waking up as like a celebration. Like, wow, I'm waking up. Like, I'm getting better at this. You are training the mind to be lost for shorter periods of time. And then, wow, look at look at how... 
uh, amazing it is to be awake as opposed to lost in thought. Look how much better it actually feels to be awake than it is to be lost in thought. And so I could see, I can see on the horizon maybe gently training enough over time so that the moment of waking up is actually could be seen as good news. Yeah. Yeah. Extremely good news. And then it translates into off the cushion behavior. We had someone come into, uh, I run something called Mindful, which is a drop-in meditation studio here in New York City. We're just going from one to three locations, which is insanity. Um, and we had someone who'd been coming every single day, which I had never expected that people come every single day for a drop-in 30-minute class. It's just part of his routine. He started bringing friends and you know, we got to know him pretty well, and he brought this one friend. I said, what are you, hang- what are you doing hanging out with this jerk? And she said, you know, it's so funny you mention that because he really was a jerk for a long <laughs> period of time. And then all of a sudden he started, like, being really nice to me and actually, like, paying attention when I talked to him and trying to be really helpful. And I said, what's going on with you? <laughs> Skeptical New Yorker that she was. And he goes, I don't know. And then goes, oh, I've been meditating. <laughs> you know, it was like this, such a subtle thing that he's like, maybe I'm learning to be kinder to myself and to others because I've been meditating. So, I mean, it's my experience, but I'm also seeing it like in all these meditation students that are coming through our doors that the effects are such a variety of things that are beyond just being present. Yes. So uh, I want to talk about Mindful, your your drop-in studio. So, but but let's talk about the new book. Um, because you, Okay, so that you had five books before this new one? Yeah. Okay, so the new one is called Love Hurts: Buddhist Advice for the Heartbroken. Okay, and I just want to say for the record that I, as a podcast host, <laughs> take pride in reading my guests' books before they come in. But you are a bad boy and didn't send me the thing. So now I'm going to go into this co- blind. So Love Hurts. What's what's it about? <laughs> okay. Because I don't know anything because I didn't read the book. I know, and I be- apologize on behalf of everyone at Shambhala Publications. <laughs> <laughs> like how I just threw them under the bus there. <laughs> yep. No, I should have I should have also followed up. Uh, so Love Hurts, it's a choose-your-own-adventure style book. It's, really? It, which is new for me. So because if you're heartbroken, you actually – you don't know how to just go through a 10-step plan. Like you're not interested in that. So the chapter titles are if you feel angry, you go to that page. Okay. If you feel depressed, you go to the page. If you feel like you will never love again, you go to that page. And um, there's advice or a story or a Buddhist practice or something. Well, that's exercise great. You, you know, do. I was just – I'm sorry to interrupt you because I'm just excited because I was just this morning talking to a close colleague, a woman I've known for a long time, who is heartbroken and in, deeply in the throes of it and is crawling out of her skin. Yeah, She's totally anxious. It feels that way. I mean, and it's also it's, – I've gotten these emails from people being like, hey, I flipped to that one page because I didn't think anyone knew how I was feeling yeah. and now I don't feel so alone. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You'll always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next listen recommendations for every type of thriller listener. The selection over on Audible when it comes to true crime, mystery, and thriller is um, quite extensive. They've got John Grisham, tons of stuff by Stephen King, David Baldacci. My favorite that I've checked out recently in the crime fiction genre is called Age of Vice. It's by Deepthi Kapoor. It came out uh, not long ago. Not only is it thrilling and uh, very, very plotty, but it's also written incredibly well. It's truly literature. Deepthi Kapoor is a, a force of nature as a writer. Age of Vice, it takes you into the uh, underworld in New Delhi in India. I absolutely love that one. 
As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. The Taste the Mediterranean sales event is going on now through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. It's a store-wide event packed with flavor. My family and I are regulars at Whole Foods Market. We've got one, I think, less than a mile and a half away from our house. This Taste the Mediterranean thing sounds pretty cool. Uh, They've got Mediterranean-inspired flavors. You can save on Parmigiano-Reggiano, charcuterie, and ground lamb. They've got delectable seafood choices. You can save on whole branzini and sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, which is a regular feature at our dinners in this house. My son loves that salmon from Whole Foods. And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out all of the uh, 365 by Whole Foods Market products. Stock up on wallet-happy Mediterranean essentials like feta cheese crumbles, whole wheat, pita pockets, and more. I am constantly consuming these 365 products, including the the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, We love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. So how many times have you had your heart broken so that you can categorize all of these? Uh, About a million. Really? I I think, so here's the thing. There's romantic You're so lovable. I mean, people, who's dumping you? (laughs) Everyone. (laughs) (laughs) No, okay, so the personal story that goes with this book, my mother was always like, oh, this is what we get because so-and-so dumped you. Um, No, but it's like, (laughs) it was this eight-week period in 2012. As you said, I'd been meditating for most of my life. I um, had been teaching meditation for 10 years at that point already. And the bottom just fell out. You know, I lost my full-time job, which was like a big sting to my ego and a little bit heartbreaking in that way. What was the job? I was um, the head of development for an international Buddhist nonprofit. And um, I just, I mean, it was sort of shocking at the time that they'd be like, we have no funds. We're eliminating the development department. I thought, okay. (laughs) So it was a shock. It was heartbreaking. So there's that sort of heartbreak around job loss and this ego sting that comes with it. My then-fiancé who I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with, woke up and said, I think I want to move to London, and you're not invited. And um, we broke up uh, that day. And that was incredibly heartbreaking because I had the whole expectation story that we were mm-hmm. getting married. Yeah. And then uh, a few weeks after that, one of my best friends from college uh, passed away unexpectedly at the age of 29 from heart failure, which just was complete shock. There was nothing physically wrong with him until his heart stopped working. And that was the real cam, a uh, straw that broke the camel's back for me. Um, and I was devastated, and I wasn't meditating at that point. I was sleeping a lot. I was drinking more than I should. I was not treating my body well. wasn't taking care of myself. And um, I did have a great community of friends that were taking care of me. They really stepped up and sort of got me to the point where I realized, oh, I should probably go seek therapy like a normal human being and, you know, start talking to someone. And that got me to the point that I started meditating again and started working with some of the strong emotions that came up. That got me to the point that I could start eating better and exercising again to the point that at this point, you know, I can talk about this from a point of, not from the place of open wounds, but from scars, right? It's still on me. I still feel the heartbreak every time I talk about it, but it's not defining who I am. It's just one part of me. And... um that 
really, I mean, it was a life-changing event for me. And I've, you know, rebounded in many, many different ways. I, you know, have other work and I'm engaged again and all of these things. But um, the topic of heartbreak, I think, is not something we often talk about. It's something that we often deal with in isolation. So I wanted to just open up the conversation around that after all these other conversations I've been having to say that you're not alone, that, you know, there's ways that we can take care of ourselves. And I did it in a completely bizarre way. I, I wrote this book in the course of a week at ABC Carpet and Home, this giant store here in New York City, um, where there's, they, I mean, I have no idea why they let me do this, to be honest, but they let me take over one of their storefront windows for a week, sort of did an author in resident situation where I'd write in the afternoons and evening and just get into it. And in the mornings, I would meet for, with people one-on-one in a space right about the size um, of the studio. And I would just hold the space. And I literally only had four questions. Most of the time, I couldn't get through all four with the time that we had, just one or two. One, what is your experience of heartbreak? And for anyone that's been listening so far, I honestly think they would probably say, oh, so you heard a lot about my boyfriend or ex- my girlfriend did X, Y, and Z. It's everything from I gave my kid up for adoption and I don't know what happened to him to I fell in love with my heroin sponsor and I relapsed to I look exactly like that person who is the victim of police brutality. I look exactly like her. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was so touched and honored to bear witness to these stories. So this book is not just romantic heartbreak. None the least. It's, It's personal, interpersonal, societal heartbreak, all of it. Just and but the emotions, the storylines are also different. But the emotions of feeling devastated or emotions of feeling angry or that you are feeling rejected or betrayed, these are all things that we feel. So how do we work with those? So once you taxonomize in the book how what, the various kinds of heartbreak, are you then recommending meditative interventions? Yeah. I mean, it really is based more on like what are you going through as opposed to like, oh, I feel heartbroken because my boyfriend left me. Like that's – it's that, – That would require too many varieties. Right. It's more like anger, shame, et cetera, Yeah, et cetera. exactly. Yeah. Relief guilt is yeah. one of them. Yeah. Like if you break up with someone and you feel complete relief but you also feel guilty that you feel relief, <laughs> you know, like that's in there. Yeah. variety of guilt. So was, I get pretty like down into the weeds of it all. But and it took you a week to do this? That's it? Yeah. I mean, I, I honestly feel like it, I was a little bit on fire. I mean, I spent I a week working that. on a paragraph. It took me years to write – you're a fast writer. I, I had something in my head and heart just I needed to go with this topic. And honestly, I am so thankful to everyone that came and met with me and shared these stories because it really, in addition to talking about their heartbreak, they also shared how they took care of themselves. And that really fed into the book. So it's not just my voice. It's all of these other people who they would always say, I know the thing I shouldn't do. Like that would always be the first thing they would say. I know I shouldn't reach for the junk food and overeat. I know I shouldn't reach for the bottle and have a drink. But here's the thing that I know I should do and I do. Like, I spend time with my kid. I go for a long walk with a friend. I take the day off and I sleep a lot, whatever it might be. Hmm. Well, congratulations on the new book. Thank you. And I swear we will get you a copy in 24 hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want a copy for my colleague who's mm. heartbroken. This I'll bring you a stack. You mentioned before Mindful, that, and, and that is M-N-D-F-L, which is the name of this uh, meditation drop-in bar. Was that what you would you call it? Like- <laughs> yes, uh, so, uh, yeah, it is. It's uh, 30 and 45-minute drop-in classes all day, every day, which is great for the busy New Yorker and horrible for my sleep schedule. First of all, let me just, just, let's just soak in the, the, how absurd it is that you can have a, a, like a successful little business teaching meditation 
you know, in this very chic little space, um, now three chic little spaces in Manhattan. I mean, 10 years ago, people would have laughed at you. I mean, this is the thing that we were talking about earlier. I can't believe that for being pushed in lockers for meditating now it's like people want to come do it. Probably the same people. Yeah. But no, it's, I mean, it, I think there's something really special because it's not just me, by the way, teaching. It's 30, at this point, 35 teachers from different traditions. Some of them are Buddhist traditions. Some are Vedic, Kundalini. You know, we even have Jewish mindfulness instructors, Hindu teachers, but they're all speaking in plain English. It's not a, a religious experience necessarily, even though these people come from religious traditions. They're trying to really make these very ancient traditional practices accessible. Um, so that's why there's these short classes. So you just get a taste of these different styles of meditation. And then you can, you know, we're the gateway drug, really. Like you can check out a bunch of different teachers and styles figure out what you most connect with and then go deep within that tradition. And so do you, do you find that pe- people come once a week, three times a week? What's the how often are people it's not cuz it's not quite like a gym. Right. Yeah, it is interesting. We have people who come often two to three times a week. We have people who come every single day. Wow. We've been open uh, we opened our first studio November 6 in 2015, so just a little over a year ago. And in that first year um, I won't give his full name, but a guy named James came um, 335 out of the 365 days. Isn't that incredible? Mm-hmm. So there, it's just sort of like, okay, I have a cramped New York apartment. I need this support and accountability of going to a class in a beautiful space that I can actually train with people. The teachers all know me. You know, we had a situation where there's a woman who was very, very pregnant and she disappeared. She was a daily practitioner with us. She disappeared for a few days. And we were like, oh, I bet she had the baby. And we were able to, like, put two and two together mm-hmm. and find her address and run over flowers and things like that. And, I mean, it feels very much – it's not just like a gym. It's actually a real community that spread it up. It's yeah. incredibly diverse and incredibly um, kind. How do you keep people motivated? Because, like, going to the gym, I mean, you might see your biceps grow. You might see your waistline shrink, et cetera, et cetera. It's not quite the same thing with meditation. Yeah, I think there's two things. One is the personal connection to teachers, right? Like the fact that you Megan knows that you come to her one o'clock class every Monday. And, you know, like there's a group of you that always go. And the other thing is we're brutally honest. Like we're not the sort of meditation space that's like come once and you're just going to feel happy. It's like literally we were very clear. It's going to take weeks for you to start to see the effects of this. But if you want to try it, it is life changing. And people who are motivated to make a real change end up sticking around. What do you think are the biggest hurdles to adopting a meditation practice? The fact that we live in an instant gratification culture, and this is not that. I really do. So, uh, if you inflated expectations. Yeah, if you yeah. go to Soul Cycle yeah. and you're like, I feel awesome after, like that's something that you immediately feel. With the meditation class, you might be like, I don't know if I did it right after, yeah. and that's not so helpful. I got this um, immediate is, thing from Soul Cycle of, I, like, I immediately felt insufficient. <laughs> Because everybody was so much better looking. They're so than me. much better, yeah. and they're so much better at it. It worked really well. Like yeah. it was fast and long lasting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but back to back to the obstacles for for meditators. Because I'm really interested in this as some as an app guy now. Um, what are the the hurdles, and then how do you help people get over them? So so you just identified this sort of inflated expectation thing. So how do you manage that? And and then after that, I'd love to hear about some of the other obstacles. I mean, one of the things we do is, you know, if we say, hey, honestly, all these studies around mindfulness, so many of the things say it's two months. So give it a month and see what happens. And we have a 30-day challenge we run twice a year where you come 30 days in a row, you get your next month membership on the house. 
And people are like, oh, that sounds like the financial incentive there sounds very good. And it's just the challenge aspect. People end up saying, well, I, whatever about the next month membership, but there's there's a little punch card that they mm-hmm. come. People love the, the punch, punch cards. cards. Yeah. So it's like I'm I on like day 10 yeah. and I'm tracking my progress yeah. and it just feels good. So we find those things to be incredibly, incredibly effective in just keeping people on track. But I think there is something to be like, hey, please talk to us about what you're experiencing per class and we can make recommendations because it's actually like this is the difference, unfortunately, between uh, having an app that's out there with beautiful guide recordings and having uh, person-to-person transmission that with apps, we're not able to just say, and here's your next obvious step based on what happened at work this week. You know, To have a human being say, that sounds really difficult, that difficult person at work. Have you tried loving kindness practice? You might like it. So this is why we built a, a, a coaching feature into 10% Happier. That's awesome. So like yeah. we have actual human beings, and, so and we find that, that our users are talking to these human beings who are – it's asynchronous, like so. It doesn't. You don't get it. Hear back from them immediately, but within 24 hours, you'll get a limitless amount of answers. You can ask whatever you want, and they'll help. Um, I mean, they're not going to help you like cook soup. But, I was going to say, I'm yeah. going to start playing with this. Although coach. We, we've we've <laughs> we've gotten some strange questions, but I do hear you. I think the personal touch is super mm-hmm. super important. I really believe that. So so what else is is do you think stands in the way um, with people? who want to meditate, who are, like, into it. Because I, I feel like there's this huge population. I think a lot of them are listening to this podcast because they're, like, they're they're into meditation, kind of. They know they should do it. But they're more likely to download and listen to this podcast than they are to actually sit for 10 minutes and do the practice. Yeah. it's a great question. Um, I think there's something about, like, having to get it right that holds us back from meditating. Bingo. Yeah. I'm doing it wrong. I'm doing it wrong. And I mean, there is something isolating. If we are like sitting at home on our own, like, is my back even straight? I can't even see it. Yeah, like, should yeah, I set up a yeah, mirror? Yeah, yeah. You know, like, yeah, this, this is, is the beauty of a class. Yeah. Like there is a teacher that says, hey, can I just, do you want to sit down and let me see how you're sitting on a cushion? Yes. And if you're having knee problems, like let's look at where your yeah. legs are. And I think there's something, we actually, we've added a mindful body class just for posture correction because people are like, I want to make sure that I'm getting it right. And of course, we don't want to feed into like there is one right way to meditate because there's so many different types of meditation out there. But for people that want the very basics of like posture correction and things like that, we wanted to make it available so that people could feel confident. And honestly, it might mean, and we've had this happen a lot, people come regularly to us and then they get their techniques that they really love and they go do it at home. We never see them again. And that's okay. It's just getting more people meditating. So you you have... Three meditation studios. You, you've just published your sixth book. You're engaged to be married. How often do you meditate, and for and for how what length of time? Yeah. Well, so there's periods of time where I'm teaching a lot, and periods of time where I'm not, which is really nice. And the periods of time where I'm not, I feel like I have more time to sort of deepen the well of my own practice and study. Uh, so right now, actually, I've been doing a lot more practice, um, in, particularly in the mornings. Like the way that we do mindful is that I often don't roll in until like eleven, and then there till like seven o'clock at night. Um, so the mornings are for exercise and taking care of myself and practicing. And I have this puppy, who oh you have a puppy too. yeah, so and that, I have a puppy too. Yeah. So like <laughs> I, I I associate like it's definitely not the same as having a child, but like the idea of a puppy jumping on me while I'm meditating. Is probably the closest I have. Yeah, to I love. Someone, to I like had screaming kid. three cats for a long time. My wife and I had three cats for a long time, and we, you know, we would say, "Oh, these are our babies." And then you actually have a baby, and you're like, "That <laughs> was the most ridiculous <laughs> yes, thing to I'm say." Sure. This is why I'm always careful about it. Yeah, 
But I do have a puppy jumping on me, and depending on the morning, anywhere from you know twenty minutes to an hour and a half. You know, it just depends on what's going on that so day. So you, sometimes you'll get a ninety minutes in him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is when it's less than that, I often feel hypocritical, and that's okay because that's my own like journey of figuring this stuff out. Like, what is my as someone who is doing a lot right now? There's going to be periods of time when I it's sort of like what I call maintenance sits. Yeah. Sort of like I'm holding it down and I'm sort of like maintaining some certain level of sanity in the midst of the storm. And then there are times when I can go away on retreat for a week yeah. or two, you know, and that's like where I can go really deep. And I try and do that at least once a year. So what is your style? Like what when you sit to meditate in this Shambhala tradition, what do you do? Like what does that look like yeah. in your mind? Um, I often like I often still do what we call in this tradition shamatha, calm abiding or peaceful abiding meditation. And that opens and closes my sessions. But um, I studied with uh, my teacher, Sakyang Mipam Rinpoche, since I was 19. Um, and he has given me different practices to do over time within the Vajrayana tradition. So, Okay, wait, wait, wait. wait. It's tell, Tibetan us what Buddhism. Com, tell us what calm abiding is before you. Okay, yeah. so it's, it's mindfulness meditation. It's actually bringing your full attention to the breath. Um, eyes open in your feel, case. Yeah, eyes open in your often case. eyes open. Like um, mean, it's kind of cast down at the floor. Like yeah, yeah. I mean, even within shamatha, there's uh, there's so many different ways of doing it. There's mm -hmm. raising your gaze at a certain point. There's just putting your gaze about two feet down, four feet down, mm -hmm. and it has different effects on the mind. And we can focus on different things. Some traditions you might focus on the in breath and the out breath, or count your breaths, or just focus on the out breath. And there's different ways of doing it. But um, the idea here is that it doesn't always feel calm, as anyone who's ever meditated once knows, but that inherently innate to who we are is the sense of peace and calm, and that it's right beneath the surface if we can peel back the onion, so to speak. So calm abiding is you're noticing the feelings of your breath coming in, going out, you're actually feeling it, and then when you get lost, you start again. That's it. Okay, so that's the beginning. Simple but not easy. Exactly. Beginning and end of your practice, but then what would you do yeah. in the middle? So the particular style of um, – so I said I use the foreign term Vajrayana. So Vajra being indestructible, uh, Yana being path or vehicle. So it's a Tibetan Buddhist series of practices. Um, there's contemplations. There's mantra recitation. Get like bowing? Uh, I, I have at periods of time done prostrations. Yep. Uh, but most of my practice these days is visualization and mantra recitation. Interesting. So yeah. like, t tell me about the visualization. I can't. You, you you come do the Vajrayana practices. You get initiated into the practice. I'll tell you all about it. But don't you think it's a little like undemocratic that you can't talk about it? Yeah. <laughs> so then why don't you I'm sorry, did you think the that rule? the Tibetan monastic system is democratic? <laughs> <laughs> you know, this thing that's been around in, in Tibet for hundreds and hundreds of years. You know, these particular practices, it's often best to be shown by a teacher directly as opposed to reading up on it or just watching a YouTube video because you sort of do in the same way that we were talking about before. There's something about having a teacher guide you through a practice so that you really understand what you're doing as opposed to someone who's only been doing it for however many years like myself, just talk about it out loud without knowing anything. So kind of what you're saying is I'm Lodro Rinsler. I'm Mr. Like Meditation for Everybody. I wrote six books, and I have three meditation studios, but I do some stuff on the side that I can't talk to you about. 
Yeah, it's actually really interesting. I'm not trying I'm to make not, fun of you. I no, mean, no, I, I, a little it's bit. It's not but. even me. It's also like all of the Vedic teachers. So people. Okay, the, the, those are the Hindu teachers, but that's a different tradition. Yeah. So yeah, the Vedas have been, you know, they've been around five, eight thousand years, depending on who you ask. And the whole thing around that, whether we're talking about transcendental meditation as a form of Vedic meditation or um, teachers like Emily Fletcher or Tom Knowles or, or Hunter Cressman, they have to initiate people into that practice. And then they receive the mantra that they do 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the afternoon. But until you do that, you, you don't really know much about it. It's all sort of hearsay and gossip. So it, I think there, you know, there's longstanding traditions, not just within Buddhism, but within that system and other systems that you sort of need a teacher to guide you and show you what is best for you in order to have a, a whole practice, like a wholesome practice. But so can uh, am I like a, um, a lesser Buddhist because no. I'm doing this stuff? I mean, there's nothing I do that I can't talk about. Honestly, if I'm doing 20 minutes in the morning and not the full 90 minutes that I could be doing, I'm just doing shamatha. I'm, I'm mindful of the breath. And that is as awesome as the practice because no matter what practice I'm doing, Dan, my mind is my mind at the end. Like, am I actually working with it? Am I actually becoming more authentic, present, and kind? I honestly think these are just different skillful means, different tools on a toolbox to work with yourself. Back to mindful for a second. Okay. You're now a businessman. I, someone told me that recently, and I'm still catching up and deciding. I guess I am. You better hope your investors aren't listening to this because yeah, they think you're a business. They really yes, think, yes. I'm, yes. and it's going great. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm a businessman too, and also readily admit I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Although I have a CEO who's awesome and t- totally knows what he's. I doing. I do too, though. So, right, my okay. business partner. So, Ellie so, so uh, but that's not my question. Okay, my question is: there are those who have the view that you shouldn't be making money off of the Dharma or spirituality, or contemplation, or whatever you want to call it. What do you say to that? Yeah, it's interesting because what we're talking about is these ancient practices, whether it is Vedic or whether it's Buddhist. I'll just speak from Buddhist because that's my experience. 2,600 years of generosity within a culture that actually allowed these practices to flourish. So it's not like the Buddha just sat down somewhere. It's like, hey, everyone gather around let's talk it's like people actually donated land and would bring out food for all of his followers and himself so that they could feel supported in doing this endeavor and i always joke that if someone wanted to buy us this this beautiful townhouse in greenwich village in greenwich village and like just pay for every all of our teachers rents and stuff like awesome i would love that and we would not have to charge money but in our consumer society there is an exchange where people say oh I offer this so that I can support the work you're doing and keep this business open because I love this business and it's actually helping me. And I think it's actually a more sustainable model to be, and I'm sure we'll get lots of feedback about this. I think it's more sustainable having served as the executive director of nonprofit Buddhist centers than the nonprofit model. I think, you know, in my own experience, there's a certain sense of um, poverty mentality in many of our nonprofit Buddhist centers where we're just trying to stay afloat and just trying to keep our doors open as opposed to saying, hey, this is what it actually takes for us to run this thing. And it, we're being honest with you. Like, we also want to pay our teachers well. And I, I think Mindful is one of the few places that actually is able to say, because you actually come and you pay for a class, our teachers are able to pay their own rent and not have to take on lots of other jobs or not have to only teach at 9 o'clock at night because there's, we're working all day. They can actually be teachers. Okay, so I'm down with all that. Well, I'm down with uh, I'm um, I'm a capitalist, so I don't really have a problem with any of this. Uh, and clearly, if I did, I'd be massive hypocrite because I'm running a company, but uh, or helping run a company. 
But where I think everybody would see what you're saying as reasonable. But where it becomes interesting potentially is if you guys are like the McDonald's in meditation, where you got where the, you've got mindful mindfuls all over the place, and you're making a ton of money. Or if with ten percent happier, the app. If we become you know uh, as popular as I don't know Twitter. Um, and everybody's got the app, our app, on their phones, and 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 we just have you know hundreds of millions of dollars. D- does that get into a funny space? You know, I mean, I, as a meditator, I, this is also going to get a lot of critique. But like, there is some element of all of us running the business at Mindful. We're meditators, and we are just trying to focus on what's going on right now. And right now, it feels in complete integrity because we have these beautiful teachers who are able to do what they do. I honestly think we have some of the best teachers in the entire city from all these different traditions, all under one roof, which is the first time I've ever seen that happen. And, um, you know, I mean, at this point, no one's getting rich off of this, right? Like this is, this is, we show up and we honestly believe that we're a service business. We are in service to absolutely every single human being that walks in the door. And if I'm sitting there, I'm not, you know, sitting there like, oh, I'm the author of six books and I've been teaching meditation for 15 years. I'm the guy that's checking you into class and showing you around and showing you where the bathroom is because that's kind. Um, so yeah, I mean, maybe if there were a hundred of them, I just, I honestly, Dan, you know, maybe. I but isn't that your goal? Years. Isn't that your goal no, to grow? That's no? the, that's the weirdest thing. Like I, I can't imagine there being a hundred of these. I couldn't have imagined at the same time that there would have been three of these a year ago. I guess what I'm saying, I'm not saying your goal is to have a hundred, but your goal is to grow. I mean, businesses are like sharks, you know, you got to keep moving. Yeah. I mean, right now we're just focused on, we're focusing on creating a kind community across three studios. Like that's my main focus for the next six months to a year is just to say, can we replicate the completely kind, accepting, diverse community that we, we have at our first location where people are coming and actually having like life changing experiences over time because they're launching a meditation practice. We've had people meet and fall in love there. We've had um, people start lifelong friendships, like all sorts of really funny things that are wonderful. Can we do that across three studios? And that's as far as my mind goes. I'm not even like bullshitting <laughs> like, oh no, we've got some secret 10 year plan in my back no, pocket. That I'm not my, talking I, about I on radio. Sus- but like, I don't suspect that you have some secret plan. I guess what I'm wondering is, is there, it's a th- bit theoretical, but and it doesn't have to even have to do with just you, but for any of us, there's a growing number of people in the meditation business. Me, you, the guys from Headspace. There's some company out now that's selling cushions. There's a, there are companies that are do sell, doing corporate mindfulness, you know, meditation inside corporations. So I guess somebody's get, potentially going to get really, really successful and then take a lot of crap for being really, really successful. And I'm just sure. wondering whether you think that's legit. Yeah, I mean, I feel like Headspace is getting knocked up in the media right now. You know, there's a piece in New York Mag that was really critiquing their ad campaign. And I, I think, you know, something like Headspace, which is helping 8 million people, something remarkable. Um, you know, if you ran an ad campaign that gets some critique, like, and that's where people are attacking you, I think that's probably a good sign. Yeah. Um, so but, similarly, like, I think that's a great position to be in. And it's the nature of the beast that I think, you know, even as we talk about this, I'll probably get a lot of flack for saying that, you know, for example, I don't think, at, if at any point I feel like we are no longer in integrity and in representing traditional techniques and teachers in a way that is accessible and helps people. If like we fall out of integrity with that, I walk away. And also like, I I think we need to scale down until we can really nail that across the board. Mm. Like that's really important to me in particular. That's the entirety of my role. My half of the business is to make sure that we remain in spiritual integrity. 
And that's like, I mean, I take it extremely serious. I don't think I've actually ever talked about this openly, but um, that's the guiding thing. Every day I wake up and I say, okay, that copy in the newsletter feels a little bit too love and lighty to me. It doesn't feel like that's actually representing what meditation is. I got to change it. You know, I got to be honest with it. So I think we can only grow to the extent that we can do that across the board. That probably means, uh, you know, the massive education process that's going into the meditation industry right now. All of the questions that you were asking me earlier, like what are the obstacles? You've gotten these questions. Headspace has gotten these questions. The meditation cushion people have probably gotten those questions. So there's a giant part of education right now saying like what is meditation and making sure that it's being responsibly communicated that, that I think it has to happen first. Yeah. Very exciting. Also daunting at the same time. Absolutely. Lodro, for people who want to learn more about you and Mindful, where should they go? Where can we where can we get info? Yeah. I mean, we're actually launching this online channel for all of the Mindful videos. So everything from the studios, and of course, if you're not here in New York or visiting New York, you can watch our teachers at home and check them out for yourself because I think, they're, as I said, they're absolutely wonderful. And it's mndflmeditation.com, all one word. And I'm at lodrorinsler.com, which is very easy to spell. <laughs> L-O-D-R-O-R-I-N-Z-L-E-R For the spelling V-Win, thank you uh, Great to see you, my man Great this to great. be here, thanks so much for having thanks me Thanks for putting up my obnoxious questions I love them Alright, there's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast If you like it, I'm going to hit you up for a favor Please subscribe to it, review it, and rate it uh, I want to also thank uh, the people who produce this podcast Josh Cohan, Lauren Efron Sarah Amos, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. And uh, hit me up at Twitter, Dan B. Harris. See you next time. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi, I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show, The Swan. The problem, this dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Pura, the most pristine, safe, climate-stable city on Earth. A haven amidst the wreckage. Here, you're safe from heat domes, superstorms, water bandits in the outer lands. There's no crime in Pura. No murder, no suicide. And best of all, there's no cost to join us. In Pura, we promised to keep you safe. I killed her! You took everything! In a world that doesn't feel so safe anymore. 
Last City is a new scripted audio drama from Wondery. Enjoy The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City right now ad-free on Wondery Plus. Get started with your free trial at wondery.com slash plus.